finish the uh, Connect the Dots tonight, the survey of the Old Testament. You ready to go through that? We got a lot to cover. And let me just remind you that uh, I shared over the weekend that after this, there'll be a two-week break, and then we're going to pick up the book of Ecclesiastes, which I know I told you it was a kind of a negative book. It is so full of wisdom, uh, really great stuff. I've been reading it every day. And um, I tell you, I can't wait. I've never taught the whole book. So I'm looking forward to it as much as I hope you are, because it's really going to be rich. Twelve chapters, Ecclesiastes. And it's, uh, we're going to call it Ecclesiastes, Living on the Jagged Edge, or summarized, The Edge. Or how about The Jagged Edge? How about Jagged? Okay. But the whole thing is, it's a man on the edge, looking for meaning in life, and I can't wait to get into it. But now, tonight we're going to look at the minor prophets, the last six minor prophets. We're going to look at major truths from the minor prophets. So let's pray together. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name to open up our understanding and speak to us from your word tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen. This is going to bless you. Amen. Now, uh, we're, we've come up to Nahum, and he's easy to remember. You just re- do it this way. Nahum. The book of Nahum, and this is the seventh minor prophet. Now, I told you last time, the minor prophets are only called minor because of the length of the book. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the major prophets are major because their books were much longer, uh, much more in them. But all of the prophets are the word of God. So whether they're major or minor, they're all prophets. And boy, I'll tell you, you can learn from these books. So Nahum, The book of Nahum can be dated somewhere between the fall of the Egyptian city of Thebes or Thebes in 663 B.C. and the destruction of Nineveh. Now, notice what I just said was destroyed. Nineveh. Okay? The sense of urgency in the book suggests that it was written shortly before the fall of the Assyrian capital, which was Nineveh, placing it about 615 B.C. Now, although the people had turned from their wicked ways in response to Jonah's message. You remember the greatest revival in history? He preached one sentence over and over and over. Really, it was essentially turn or burn. And the whole city repented. I mean, it was an incredible revival. And he's the only revivalist that ever had the best revival in the world and hated it. He wished it hadn't happened because he didn't want them saved. Think about that. You have the greatest revival in the history of the world And you're mad at God for doing it. Not me. If all of Fort Worth got saved, you'd have to pull me out of the clouds. All right? Now, so they turned from their wicked wicked ways in response to Jonah's message earlier, but their conversion did not last long. Nahum's warning comes only a few years before the Lord punishes them by allowing Babylon to rise up and destroy Nineveh in 612 B.C. They lasted a little over a century after Jonah's revival. So it took about a century for them to revert back 
and come under God's judgment and ultimately be destroyed. Just goes to show you, if you repent, stay repented. Okay? Now, Israel's exile to Assyria had happened over 100 years earlier in 722 B.C. Meanwhile, Judah was enjoying a great time or a great religious reform under good king Josiah. So while the northern kingdom, remember I told you there's 10 tribes in the northern kingdom, two in the southern kingdom, they split because of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So what did he do? Well, Rehoboam came into the kingdom after Solomon. They were all under him, all 12 tribes, and Israel, or, or many of the tribes, wanted tax relief because Solomon had so badly taxed them. There was nothing new under the sun. They wanted tax relief. And so, so Rehoboam went to the old men, the, the sages, the wise men, who had served under Solomon, and said, what should I do? And they said, look, give them tax relief, bless them, and they will love you the rest of your days. But then he went to his peers, the young fools, and said, what should I do? And they said, man, make it twice as bad on them. Turn the screw. I mean, make them suffer. And he listened to his friends and reported to those that had asked him for relief, I'm going to make it worse on you. And they defected. Ten tribes went off and formed the northern kingdom of Israel and two, the southern, and it was split from that moment forward. The moral of the story is don't listen to your peers. Listen to older folks with gray hair (laughs) or no hair. But wisdom comes with age, I trust. Amen? So that was the problem. So here's Judah enjoying a great time under uh, Josiah, but Israel, the 10 tribes are being carried off into Assyria, into captivity from which they never returned. Judah returned after Babylonian captivity, but Israel never returned. Isn't that something? They just faded, melted into the worldwide melting pot, only came back together in 1948 when Israel became a nation again powerful stuff. Nahum's real message is to stress the sovereignty of God over history and the world. God is good and just. And folks, I say it over and over again on Wednesday nights here, God is sovereign. History is his story. Okay. Therefore, he, God is the champion of the outraged and the helpless and will by no means, wrote Nahum, will by no means justify the guilty. While God could use a wicked nation like Assyria to punish unfaithful Israel, he also held them accountable for their own actions. Israel is absorbed into Assyria. They are taken captive into Assyria. But about a century later, God lowered the boom on Assyria. And they were judged for their sin. The book can be divided into two sections. Chapter 1 speaks of the nature and the purposes of God towards those who oppose and those who trust him. Chapters 2 and 3 contain uh, contain songs or oracles about the siege and the fall of Nineveh. It was a big deal. Nineveh was a huge, powerful capital of Assyria, and it came crashing down under the judgment of God. One thing you're going to see in these minor prophets and the major prophets, all through the Word of God, nobody's too big to fall. 
God can bring anybody down. He can bring any nation down. Isaiah said to God, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. He makes one rise and he brings down the other. It's all in the hands of God. It may look like the enemy is in charge or that flesh is in charge. But folks, the message of the Bible is that ultimately our God is in charge. And he rules the nations through his sovereign providence. And that's a fact. Now, chapter 1 begins with a beautiful psalm of praise in the first eight verses. If you want to read it, I hope you will. The rest of the chapter contains warnings to Assyria slash Nineveh, the capital, and promises of deliverance to Judah. Chapters 2 and 3 of Nahum contain words of mocking and taunting Nineveh. And unless you understand what he's thinking, you wonder why would he mock and taunt a nation that's about to be brought under judgment. Nahum's call for punishment on Nineveh comes from a deep understanding of the righteousness of God. Now listen carefully to me tonight. Much of the church in the West, much of the American church, and I would say in England and and, uh, other parts of the free world, do not understand judgment. They don't understand justice. They do not understand that God will bring judgment on a nation if that nation crosses the line and sins too long, too hard, too grievously for God to ignore it. Sin is answered by the justice of God. Okay? So Nineveh understood, not Nineveh, but uh, Nahum understood this. 100 years earlier, God referred to Assyria as his hired razor, whose duty was to punish Israel. God's hired razor is what Isaiah called Assyria. And they were used to, to bring judgment and chastening to God's people. Now, God in his sovereignty used an unrighteous nation to punish the sin in Israel. Was he condoning their unrighteousness by doing this? No, he wasn't. He was using them as a tool. Now, that's not easy for us to wrap our Western minds around, that God would lay his hands on a wicked nation and use them as a tool to chasten his own people. But that's exactly what he did with Assyria, and that's exactly what he did with Babylon. God's hired razor. God's whipping stick. Okay? So instead of, instead of focusing on the wickedness of Assyria, we should focus on the wrong that he's allowing to be punished. What did they do that got them in so much trouble with God? They were sacrificing their children. They were worshiping idols. They were ignoring God. They were going through ritual and their heart was not in it. Religious ritual with no heart. They were involved in sexual perversion. You can go down the list of what Judah and Israel did. And it's like reading the morning paper in any city in America. So I ask you, does God judge? Yes, he judges. Is America going to be judged? There is no way America can avoid judgment. Slaughtering our children. You can call, you can call abortion a woman's choice or uh, it, it's her body. I could go off into that. It's not the woman's body. It's the baby's body. And her health, they call it an issue of woman's health. Her health isn't at issue or 
in danger in 99.8% of abortions. It's an abortion, I'm going to go ahead and say it, of convenience. And I don't want any baby messing with my stuff. So I'll just take care of it this time. I want to have one later, I will. But God says that he formed us and shaped us uh, in our mother's womb. That he, he is the one who wires our DNA, our genetic makeup. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. Okay? So when a baby is killed, and that's what happens in abortion, do you think God ignores that? Especially now that it's been an entire generation, 50 to 60 million children, 50 to 60 million. Einstein's, Beethoven's, Bill Gates's, geniuses, gifted, taxpayers who would have replenished social security if all you care about is money. There's 60 million who are not paying into it. No getting around it. So God wasn't condoning the, uh, the evil of Assyria. He was just using Assyria to chasten them. God's a God of grace and compassion. He demonstrated this before to Nineveh by sending Jonah to summon them to turn from their wicked ways or face destruction. And they did, but they just didn't stay with it. In his compassion, he allows sinners the opportunity to come to him every time. If you go off into sin, one of the first things that's going to happen to you as a child of God is he's going to warn you. He's going to check you. He's going to send voices to speak to you. However it gets to you, God will find you, and he will warn you. He will try to stop you. He will try to woo you. He will do everything to get you to turn if you go off into sin. He'll do it with individuals, and he does it with nations. I believe he's done it with America, and he's doing it with America right now in the final seconds before more severe judgments fall. So for, for that, we're all grateful. Amen? Now, following their repentance, Assyria soon returned to their ruthlessness. It's to this nation that Nahum brings his message of coming destruction. It is to this backslidden Assyrian nation. Now we come to Habakkuk. Everybody say Habakkuk. Now, some people say Habakkuk. That's not easy for me. I like Habakkuk. And you know what? It doesn't matter. It depends on where you're from. Now, not much is known about Habakkuk, nor the times in which he lived. Habakkuk asked two pressing questions on behalf of his people. And I so understand Habakkuk. Both of his questions are relevant to any generation, and most people ask them at some point in their life. Here's the first question. He presents it to God in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and it's this. Why do you allow the wicked to prosper? I do not understand. How many of you have ever wondered that? Come on. Why do the wicked prosper? Have you ever wondered that? Why do the people who are just cursing God and living in sin and doing everything in the world wrong, why do they live till they're 90? And then people who really love the Lord are taken home at 30. Uh, Why does it seem that sometimes the righteous or, or the wicked experience no adversity, all kinds of money, they seem to be happy, and yet the righteous are chastened by God regularly and go through all kinds of trials and troubles. Have you ever wondered that? I have. It almost ate David's lunch. And you can read about it in Psalm 73. So that was his question to God. Why are you allowing the wicked to prosper? Habakkuk is troubled by the evil that is happening all around him, seemingly unchecked. It seems like nothing is happening to the wicked. The argument used is that even if the wicked prosper, what benefit 
Is there to living a righteous life? Habakkuk's attitude was, why should I live righteously if the wicked live wickedly and it looks like they're having all the fun? The Bible says, do not envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord all the day long. For you will have a reward and your expectation will not be cut off. It's, it's, a, it's an illusion that the wicked are having all the fun while the righteous are just being religious. Sitting in church thumping a Bible. Right? No, hey, I, Christians I know have so much fun, especially like when we're in a restaurant or something. People wonder what we're drinking, and we're drinking H2O. We're just laughing and having fun. You don't have to be drinking something, smoking something, shooting something, snorting something to have fun. You can have fun in the Lord. All right? Um, Now, God responds to Habakkuk's first question in chapter 1, 5 through 11. He says, in essence, I'm going to take care of it. Don't you worry. The wicked are going to be put in slippery places, the psalm says. He points out that he's raising up the Babylonians to punish evil. Now, this is the Babylonians, not the Assyrians. The Babylonians took Judah. The Assyrians took Israel. God's answer is that I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Isn't that powerful? Well, what was that? At the height of Assyria's dominance, nobody would have imagined that within their lifetime, Assyria would be defeated and Babylon would be on their doorstep and take over the reins of world power. That this mighty Assyria in their lifetime would be taken down. I'm going to do something you wouldn't even believe. Babylon's attack and capturing of Judah was going to be God's punishment on the wickedness of the nation. So God's answer to the question, why do you allow the wicked to prosper, is this, quote, while I may tolerate evil for a while, in time, a wicked nation is going to receive its fair punishment. You can mark it down. No one escapes the all-seeing, all-powerful eye of God. No one does. Now, here's a second question that Habakkuk had. His second question is found in chapter 1, verses 13. Quote, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? I feel that way today. I look at people. I know that right now as we speak, Christians around the world are being persecuted. They're being martyred. If you go to Egypt, they're being martyred. Hey, are you ready? Christians are being martyred in Mexico. They're being martyred in Asia. They're being martyred in Africa. If you name the name of Christ in many parts of the world, you are martyred for it. Your head is taken off for it. And you are told if you recant, then we won't do it. But if they refuse to recant, and it's probably, it's primarily at the hands of Muslims, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, radical Muslims, then they take their head off for not denouncing and renouncing Christ. And I look at that and I go, Lord, why don't you stand up? Why don't you stand up for them? How can you watch that happen to them? And that's what Habakkuk is experiencing. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Babylon is by no means righteous, not even close. And it doesn't make sense that God would use an evil nation once again, a century after Assyria, to punish his own people. Now, here's God's reply. 
God gives five woes. Now, if God says woe over you, you're in trouble. You don't want to hear God say woe unto you. But God gives five woes addressing how the different sins of erring nations are going to be punished. Now, it's interesting to see how the consequences are related to the crimes. Now, let me just look at them real quickly. The first woe. Woe to the robber, the thief, the embezzler, the dishonest person, the one who appropriates for himself that which belongs to another. And I'm not talking about Washington, D.C. I don't want you to get confused. I'm sorry. I mean, I was just reading the dishonest person, the one who appropriates for himself what belongs to another, and I just flashed there. I don't know why. Okay. Now, here's the consequence. Those who do that, there's a consequence. Everybody say consequence. Oh, we need to learn consequences all over again. Here's the consequence. A man will reap what he sows. God says in verse 8, he will reap what he sows. If you steal from another, somebody's going to steal from you. If you lie for another, somebody's going to lie to you. If you embezzle, if you take what belongs to somebody else, it's going to happen to you. Now, here's the second woe. Woe to exploiters and extortioners which means to get evil gain. You get gain, but you get it by evil means, unethical means. Consequence, the stones in the walls of your house and the wood and the beams of your house will cry out against you. You know the way I interpret that? You will have no peace in your own house. Your sins will chase you down to the point or even the stones, the bricks in your own house will cry out against you. You will, you will be surrounded by the voice of guilt and God's judgment, even in your own home. That's a powerful metaphor right there. Okay? You can't escape. What God was often called in preaching, in evangelistic preaching in the past, the hound of heaven. And when God's after you and you're in sin, he's the hound of heaven. He will find you, Jonah. God's got a lot of whale bellies. A lot. Jail. Misery that you can't escape from. He's got a lot of ways of finding you. So that's the consequence. Now, the third woe is to evil and violence. The tyrant builds his society the bulldozer way. Running roughshod over anyone who gets in his way. The violent person. Uh, the, the, the tyrant, the dictator who just mows over people to exercise his own will. And he says, woe to that person who stomps on people like the communists did in China and Russia. The way millions of people were destroyed, murdered, killed in the name of communism, Marxism. They were rolled over. They were They were wiped out by Stalin and other communist leaders, Hitler. And what happened to them? Here's the consequence. He will be consumed in the flames, but a kingdom built on the glory of God will cover the whole earth. Verse 14, he will be consumed in the flames. I take that to mean hell. He will be consumed in the flames. You stomp on people, murder people to get your own way, and you don't ever repent, you will be consumed in the flames of hell. Second or fourth woe, woe to those who practice debauchery, meaning those who ruin their fellow men by strong drink in order to gaze on their shame. You remember 
Noah and how Noah got drunk after he <laughs> was on the water all that time and was a part of that huge miracle. But when they finally find land again and they get off the ark, him and his three sons, um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they go off and Noah went into a cave and I believe it is at this time that wine was discovered for the first time when Noah got off the ark. Because you don't read about drunkenness anywhere until Noah. And so he finds this fruit of the vine. He overdoes it. He gets drunk. And he, fall, he, he literally blacks out in the cave and naked. And you remember the story, Ham found him first. And instead of covering up his shame, Ham went out and broadcast the sin to his brothers. Hey, come see dad. He is smashed. Come on. Well, Shem and Japheth looked in there and it says they went in backward with a blanket and threw it over their father and covered his sin and his shame. God, when Noah woke up and realized what was done, God through Noah cursed Ham and all the descendants of Ham were cursed throughout history. But Shem and Japheth were blessed. There's a message here. When a brother or a sister fall, you don't go broadcast it. You, if you're a mature, you get a blanket, so to speak, and you go and you cover their shame, and you see them restored. If you want to be blessed, I don't want to be a ham. I want to be a Shem or a Japheth. Amen? So here's the consequence. The one who makes his neighbor drunk will himself drink the cup of the wrath of God, says Nahum. Here's the last woe. Woe to idolatry. Woe to, woe to the idolaters. An idol is anything we place before God. You, you can put anything in front of God, and that's an idol. If, if it takes precedence over God in your life, you have an idol. It doesn't have to be a little wooden figurine that you bow down to and worship. Anything that comes before God in our life is an idol. It can be a person. It can be a place. It can be a thing. It can be a drug. It, it can be anything, but it's an idol. Now, what happens? The consequence, all the forces that oppose God will ultimately be silenced, says Nahum. And idolatry brings the chastening and the rebuke of God. Book of Revelation says during the tribulation period, idolatry is going to be rampant, alive and well, Real, hardcore idolatry. You can read about it. The worship of demons in the book of Revelation. Now, Habakkuk concludes with a song of praise. In it, he repeats the answer to question number one. Why does God allow the wicked to go unpunished? And Habakkuk responds, he doesn't. It comes in its own good time. Now, the closing verses of the chapter contain a declaration of faith. And you know that declaration that there'll be no calves in the stall, no fruit on the vine. And he goes through this long list of negative things. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord, my Savior. He trusts for God to take control and that God's going to win in the end. Now, Habakkuk declares that even though the conditions haven't changed, he has joy. Even though circumstances don't change, he has joy as he waits patiently for God's deliverance and the day of judgment for his enemies. Folks, if you're being oppressed, if you're experiencing trials, if you're not seeing any fruit on the vine, no cattle in the stall, if you're not seeing what you hope to see, what your faith is reaching for, 
Maintain your joy in the Lord. He's still in charge. It's a matter of timing. Amen? He, uh, his acknowledgement in chapter 2, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Can we read this together? It's a great, great uh, statement of faith. Ready? But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That gives Habakkuk the peace he needs regarding his present conditions. So if you're going through a trial, just say it. The Lord is in his holy temple. He's in charge. Let all the earth be silent before him. He's going to win in the end. Okay, Zephaniah. The message of Zephaniah is given during the reign of Josiah, the king of Judah. So we're not talking about Israel here, but Judah. As a whole, the nation of Judah is drawing nearer to its judgment day. A century before, Israel was taken to Assyria. They've had a century to think about it. What happened to their sister? Israel. But they're soon going to pay for their continued sin. The reign of Josiah, who was a good king. I remember I told you in the northern kingdom, there were no good kings. In the southern kingdom, there were a few, and Josiah was one of them. And the reign of Josiah is a light in a dark place. It's a glimmer of hope. He established reforms to religious observance in Judah, and he turned the people back to God. I mean, he really, really, the reforms of Josiah are one of the highlights of the Old Testament. But it's clear from the reigns of Josiah's sons that the reform did not happen in their heart, and they slipped right back into sin just like Nineveh did. They went back. Now, the question might be raised, how could the same prophet, Zephaniah, preach two messages of judgment and hope? How could he preach on judgment and on hope at the same time to the same audience? How could he do that? That's an important question. It's a key to understanding the message of Zephaniah and all of the prophets. And the answer is found in God's long-range purpose. Now, let's look at why God did what he did throughout the Old Testament. Little, little um, recap here. From the beginning of creation, God wanted a being in his own image to worship him in truth. This is why he didn't make us robots. He didn't program us where we would just praise your Lord, praise your Lord, praise your Lord. He wanted you to do it because you want to do it. That's why it's called the sacrifice of praise. He didn't want robots. Robots, he didn't want automatons, he wanted people. So he created a being in his own image to worship him in truth. And that was Adam and Eve. They were the beginning. And Adam failed. And Noah failed, as we just talked about a moment ago. So God made a covenant with a set-apart people whom he could call his own. And Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people, were and are those set-apart people. But guess what? They failed him too. That's what we've been reading in the Old Testament. My Lord, almost every book, you know, judges all through the the people of Israel, the people of God failed over and over and over chronically over and over again. So God still had a promise to fulfill, the promise he made to Abraham. Out of your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to bless you. So rather than beginning with a brand new group, he intends to purify the people with whom he has begun. 
And this purification is the purpose of judgment. God judges to purify, not to destroy. When it relates to his people. If you are without chastening, Hebrews tells us, then you're not a child of God. For he chastens every son he receives. So if you're not getting chastened by God somewhere along the way, you're not a child of God. And what is he chasing you for? To purify you. Okay? So, ultimately, God will perfect the people with a perfect covenant and a perfect king. Jesus, the Messiah. The hope expressed in chapter 3 looks forward to the return from exile and further to the eternal, universal, messianic kingdom of God. What does the Old Testament teach us? We can't keep the law. We cannot keep the law. We can't keep the Ten Commandments. And if you break one, you've broken them all, James said. So we come to the end of the Old Testament going, what am I going to do? I can't keep the law of God. I cannot be righteous and holy in my own effort. And that's exactly what God intended the law to show us. It's going to take a born-again people who are made righteous, not by their own actions, but by the imputed righteousness of Messiah. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You know, we get convicted about sin all the time. When was the last time you were convicted about your righteousness in Christ? Because you're righteous in Christ. You say, me? I'm full of faults and mistakes. Yeah, but God's not looking at you through your own actions. He's looking at you through sunglasses. Do you get it? God wears shades when he looks at you, and they're tinted red. He looks at you and I, the children of God, through red-tinted glasses, the blood. He sees us through the blood. And when he looks at us, he says, righteous, justified, glorified. That's what he does. So that's the hope expressed in chapter 3 of Zephaniah, that when the universal messianic kingdom of God has finally ultimately come, God's going to have that righteous, pure, holy people worshiping him in a spotless, with a spotless soul. Now, our focus in the Old Testament is usually on the nation of Israel. Zephaniah and many others of the prophets remind us that God is God, not only of Israel, but he's God of all the nations of the earth. He's the God of China. He's the God of Russia. He's the God of all of Europe. God is the God of every nation and tribe of earth. Even though they're not glorifying him today, he's still providential and sovereign over them. Now, while God does have a special covenant relationship with Israel, he is still concerned with every nation and person on the earth. Do you believe that? His heart breaks for every nation and person on the earth. Now, we come to Haggai. The last three books of the Minor Prophets jump forward in time to the end of the exile and the return of the Jews to Canaan. We're talking about the Babylonian exile. During the Babylonian exile, Daniel and Ezekiel addressed the Jews. And as their time of punishment comes to an end, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are called by God to bring his message to them as they are being released to return to their own land. Now, other than the book which bears his name and two brief mentions in the book of Ezra, 
The prophet Haggai is an unknown and mysterious figure in the Bible. His name is related to the Hebrew root word for feast or religious festival. Now, this fact, along with Haggai's emphasis on the importance of the temple, is sometimes used as evidence that Haggai was probably a priest. When we look at the historical circumstances, the situation is more enlightening. Between the years 605 and 586, the people of Judah were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, right? This event, known as the Babylonian exile, took place in three stages, culminating with the abortive and misguided rebellion of the puppet king Zedekiah in 586. Nebuchadnezzar had installed Zedekiah to be the king over Judah. He was just, he was just Nebuchadnezzar's puppet. And Zedekiah rebelled against him. And it made Nebuchadnezzar so mad that he set fire to both the temple and the royal palace and took the remainder of the people of God back to Babylon. So with Solomon's temple totally in ruins, Israel's uh, humiliation was complete. And remember, they thought they could do whatever they wanted, and God would not let them be taken into captivity because he would not let anything happen to the temple. They were putting their false hope in that temple. But God said, no, no, you sin against me, I'll let the temple be taken out. You must answer for what you've done. So the temple was destroyed. The magnificent, incredible Solomonic temple. Amazing. Not long after this, Babylon itself fell before the might of the Persian Empire. And in 539 BC, the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree that allowed the exiled exiled Israelites to return. Now, this event also takes place in three stages, beginning with the return of a remnant of only 50 thousand people. Only 50,000 people left Babylon to go back to the promised land. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah were part of this first group. At first, this number might seem small, and you got to wonder, why would so many Jews choose to remain behind in Babylon in the place of their captivity? Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they return back to their homeland? I would have wanted to, because that was the epicenter of the will of God for them. But apparently, a lot of them had become so settled in Babylon that it became home for them. And they didn't wish to tear up roots once again. Here's a message. You as a Christian can become so acclimated to the world. If you don't separate yourself from the world and the sin of the world and sanctify yourself to God, you can settle in Babylon and never get back into the epicenter of God's will for you. And that's sobering. And i got to tell you, as a pastor of 30 years, I've seen people do it. It's seductive out there. It can really talk to you. Yeah, there's, well, I'm just going to mingle with the worldly people. And I, you know, I want people to like me, so I'm not going to really stand up for Jesus. And you get out there and you start hanging around worldly people and doing worldly things and going worldly places. And before you know it, you are ensconced in Babylon. And when God calls you back to your purpose, your destiny, your calling, your promised land, you say, you know, I've just gotten acclimated to Babylon. And you stay. And you miss God. You miss God. 
Now, the 50,000 might have thought twice when they saw what waited for them. There were several difficulties. To begin with, the land had lain fallow for years and would need much work to be productive again. It looked a mess when they got back to their home. Ancestral homes had either been destroyed or had imploded due to neglect. The city, which had once teemed with 100,000 inhabitants, now contained only 30,000 and was a shadow of its former self. Oh, they had lost so much through their sin. As if that weren't enough, the lower classes of Judeans, the undesirable elements of their society, had taken over the holdings which had once belonged to these returnees. We would say that squatters were living in their former homes. Got the key, went in, shut the door, locked it. You can't have it back. Not surprisingly, this led to internal tension between the Jewish people who had remained in the land and those who were now returning to the land after the exile. And added to the mix was external tension. Neighboring peoples and local Persian officials were against Israel rebuilding. Samballat, Tobiah, these Persian men were totally against the rebuilding of the temple and the wall. According to Ezra 3 through 4, this remnant tried to rebuild the temple upon their return, but they faced much discouragement and opposition. And folks, when you begin to rebuild and get back what you lost to the enemy, you are always going to have a battle and you are always going to have moments of great discouragement. Because what you lose to the enemy, when you repent and return, he doesn't say, oh, well, they've repented. Let's leave them alone. The enemy will fight you because he doesn't want you getting back what you lost. And so they were very discouraged in rebuilding the temple and very discouraged in rebuilding the wall. But they finished and they did it. Now, the result was that work on the house of the Lord came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, this discouraging period lasted 15 years, after which time the prophet Haggai basically said to them, get off your blessed assurance and finish. Amen. You ever had God tell you, get up, quit murmuring, quit whining, quit complaining, and finish? Get with it. Snap to it. Now. Anybody ever heard that but me? Quit pouting, quit whining. Finish. Now we come to Zechariah. The opening verse of Zechariah gives us the date of this passage or of this uh, message, his message. It's given in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Thus, the book is written around 520 BC near the end of Judah's exile in Babylon. The book begins by addressing the question, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? He said, it's time to let them go, God. The name Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. And he assures the people that God has not forgotten them, even though he has allowed them to be exiled as punishment for their unfaithfulness. Can I tell you, if you're being chastened by God tonight, he's doing it because he loves you and he has not forgotten you. He remembers you and he will bless you again. All right. In 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued a decree which allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. As we just went over with the prophet before this, Approximately 50,000 Jews returned to rebuild the temple 
And on their return, they began the rebuilding process. Now, the Samaritans and other neighboring nations felt threatened by the potential of a renewed Jewish state. (laughs) Nothing new under the sun there. They're still threatened by it. And resisted the project with great opposition, managing to halt the rebuilding work, as we just saw. When Darius the Great became king of Persia in 522, he supported the Jews' building venture and offered his support. God moved on a pagan man to give support to his purposes with his people. The work on the temple was completed and dedicated to God in 516 B.C. Now, while Haggai focused more on the practical mission of restoring the temple, Zechariah stressed the need for a Messiah who would bring deliverance, which would be deeper and longer-lasting than that which their return from exile had brought them. In other words, they were watching this temple get rebuilt. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the older men who had, been, who had seen Solomon's temple looked at this new temple, second temple, rebuilt temple, and they began to weep. The younger people were all rejoicing. Look at the temple, look at the temple, hallelujah, the temple's rebuilt. But the older men remembered what it had been like, and they wept. And the message of Zechariah is, it's great the temple is rebuilt, it's a good thing, but this isn't all that God's going to do. There's going to be a Messiah, and he's going to change everything. Now we come to Malachi. The book placed at the end of the Old Testament, this is the last one, is also most likely the last to be written before the time of Christ. The time between Malachi and Christ is often referred to as the 400 silent years. Can you imagine not, there not having been a word from God since the 1700s? If we went back 400 years to the 1700s, the founding of our nation, and let's say after the Declaration of Independence was signed, There had been no more word from God until now. 400 years. There was 400 years of prophetic silence after Malachi. The name Malachi means my messenger. And he writes, once once the temple had been rebuilt in 516 B.C. That's when he wrote. When the temple was done, he began to write. Now, it appears that lethargy after the temple had been rebuilt had already set in. And worship had become wearisome and tiresome for the Jews. And although the people had returned to the land, life never did return to the state. It had been in the glory days when David and Solomon ruled. Isn't that something? Haggai 2 through 3, or verse 3, and Ezra 3 verse 11, reveal the disappointment demonstrated by those who had seen Solomon's temple. And I was just talking about that. And they recalled the glory days. The older men wept, and others were skeptical. And this led to a departure from true worship, the condition that Malachi addresses in his book. Now, here's what Malachi does. His message is one of judgment, testifying against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages. You do a job, you don't get paid. God sees that. Okay, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear Yahweh or God. Now, he uses a question and answer method to rebuke the people for their neglect of the true worship of the Lord and calls them to true repentance. 
He begins with an accusation. Let me give you an example. Why are you robbing God? Malachi says to them, why are you robbing God? And they said, how are we robbing God? How can you rob God? And he answered in tithes and offerings. And because you're robbing God in tithes and offerings, you're under a curse and not under a blessing. And so he says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And prove me now here with, says the Lord of hosts. If I want to open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, you won't have room enough to receive. So this is the way he dealt with them. A question, they would, they would rebel against the question, and then he would answer it. Now, as we reach the end of the book of Malachi, and simultaneously the conclusion of the Old Testament, one message cries out from the pages. Read it with me, would you, out loud. Unfinished. You come to the end of Malachi... Last book written in the Old Testament, and it says, unfinished. God is not done. Israel was sent into exile in Babylon in order to punish them and bring them back to a covenant relationship with Yahweh. Its purpose was not fully accomplished. And shortly after her return, she reverted to her sin of unfaithfulness to God. And this sets the scene for Jesus Christ. Because the prophetic silence was broken by the voice of John the Baptist. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this sets the scene for a new way in which Christ would come. And Israel would become those not born into the faith physically, but those born into Israel through the new birth. How many of you are thankful for the new birth? So Malachi put down his pen. The Old Testament closed. 400 years of prophetic silence. And the next prophet to lift his voice, John the Baptist. And he called us to Christ. And now we can become born again. And once we're born again, then God's will is done. We can worship him from a pure heart. Can we stand together tonight? I know it's a lot of information in one night, and it can be mind-numbing. But isn't this good? I I really appreciate the Word of God. I love the Word of God. So can we just lift our hands and thank God that we're in the New Covenant, that we're in the New Covenant, that the Old Testament closed, but we were fortunate enough to be born under the providence of God into the time of the New Covenant. And now we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Lord, we just thank you tonight with hands raised and hearts raised with them. That all of these events that happen in the Old Testament, these types and shadows and figures pointing to what you were going to do in the New Testament. Teach us, Lord. Show us your plan. We connect the dots. We see that the Old Testament led to the New Testament. And now, Lord, we thank you that the next great prophetic event to happen is the return of Messiah to earth. And, Lord, if you came the first time, you're going to come the second time. And we thank you for it and praise you. And we have this living hope, Lord, and we bless your name for it. In Jesus' name, let's worship just a stanza or two. Thank you, Lord. How great